You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, and I think that's where we talk a lot about the invisibility of labor, right? So we we were just talking about the invisibility of the labor that it takes to get to that point. It also brings up that saying that people love to say like, oh, we all have the same hours in the day as Beyonce. Uh-huh. Like, do you also have all of the other things that Beyonce has that help her support um, her work and, you know, the people who do her hair and the people who make sure she has stuff to eat and her trainers and just all this labor that is invisible that goes on behind the superstar or doesn't have to be a superstar, a, a smaller star. That was Esme Wang, a New York Times bestselling author and essayist and the founder of the Unexpected Shape Writing Academy for ambitious writers living with limitations. She joins me today to discuss the challenges of being creative and productive while living with chronic illnesses and disabilities. Even if you don't currently have a chronic illness or disability, most people are going to be temporarily disabled at some point in their lives, and many of your family members, friends, and community members likely have a chronic illness or disability, too. If you're living with a limitation, you don't have to change your aspirations and ambition, but you may have to change your approach. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Esme, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. I've been excited about this one for a long time. Um, and I, you know, we were talking about it in the green room. And, um, you know, I've had to switch to recording from my closet today because there's construction outside. And it's kind of poignant to me because when you're a creative, a creator, and you're dealing with disabilities and um, chronic illnesses, one of the things that you have to accept more than maybe some people who don't deal with those is that your plans don't always work out the way that you want them to because life happens, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is poignant. I'm not trying to compare my situation of recording from the closet to someone who is dealing with a disability or chronic illness, um, but the similarities is that you have to get comfortable with things not going your way and accepting the limitations thereof. So thanks so much. Um, I sort of dove right in there, but um, let's pull back and talk about your work as um, both a, um, well, as an author. So bring us into the conversation. Um, When did you really decide that being a professional writer was the path for you? And how did you slide into that? Yeah, so I think um, as many children of immigrants uh, can identify with, uh, so my parents are from Taiwan. And ever since I was young, I very much wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be an author. I wrote a letter to Little Brown when I was six years old, asking how I could become a published author. And they actually sent me back this beautiful typewritten letter saying, well, you need an agent. So at six uh, six years old, that was not uh, what I was going to do at that time, but I did continue on uh, in a path that 
was very keen towards creative writing. The problem was that my parents felt that that kind of future was not much of a future at all. I mean, I had a father who said when I got into Brown University that Brown wasn't a real Ivy League school. So, you know, they had a certain idea of what I should should do. And so I went to Yale. I studied uh, pre-med. Um, I did some psychology and psychiatry. And it wasn't until after, I was writing this whole time, but it wasn't until after I graduated from Stanford, worked at a brain imaging lab for about three or four years that I realized I am not meant for a clinical psychology future. I am really bad at statistics. And that is very important if you want to get a PhD in clinical psychology. So I decided to apply for MFA programs in fiction. And that's kind of how it went. Um, I ended up going to a program at University of Michigan. Uh, my parents at that point uh, were dealing with other things. And so they didn't have that much time to hassle me about going to get my MFA. And fortunately now they're very proud of me and what I've managed to accomplish, um, which which does, though, I think, say a lot as well about immigrants and their perception of success. But uh, that's a, another topic. It is, and it, it's actually on point because when we think about, well, I've had this conversation with folks who have asked me about being an author and sort of the creative life that I live. And I usually do want to point out that um, there's an, there's a difference when you come from a community of color or an immigrant community um, when it comes to making that type of choice, because there's more risk in a lot of different ways. There's more family pressure, right? Because it's like if you're the kid that went to college and then you decide to come out and be this sort of, um, you know, unstable, like non, you know, ambiguous sort of career person they're like you should be you should have been like a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or something stable and predictable but you chose to be like for me using my mom's voice to be like so you have a near phd in philosophy and you've decided to become a blogger really <laughs> that's the arc <laughs> right yeah. you decided to become a writer that's the arc like you could have this great job this great prestigious job, and here you are doing this weird thing. And so I think while it's not necessarily the front story that we thought we were going to talk about, I did at least want to acknowledge that the creative life is um, its a different choice depending upon where you end up or where you start out in the sort of strata, the social strata that you, that you start in. Yeah, and I think it's also important to recognize that a lot of children of immigrants are expected to um, help their parents pay for things, to help their parents survive. Um, you know, I I'm, I was very proud at the time when I was able to finally start giving my parents money. And I had friends who were children of immigrants who were not, uh, who were excellent writers, but did not go into creative writing because they felt they needed to go work at a hedge fund so that they could help um, pay for their parents, to help their parents buy a house, to help basically fund their parents' lives. And so that is something that I'm very conscious of um, I, and I continue to be conscious of as I think about how lucky I am that I get to do something that I really love. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, could potentially open up a conversation for us around the 
how generational wealth, maybe generational poverty, maybe gener- generational economic transference happens asymmetrically in our society. Again, immigrants expect there, you know, like there's that expectation that the wealth that you earn goes up. Whereas if you grew up in the United States, actually the it's expected to work the other way around for most of the dominant culture, right? Their parents get a certain amount of wealth and then they give it to you. Mm-hmm. That affects how we choose to live our lives, what work we choose to do, and how adventurous we may be in different ways, or at yeah. least the obligations that we may have as we choose to live the creative life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, while so much of our conversation thus far has sort of meandered into um, your background, and, you know, I found it really fascinating that um, your parents thought Brown wasn't really an Ivy League school. Um, and then your journey to Michigan for writing, that's quite a, quite a fall from a certain person's perspective of, you, you know, you went to Yale, you're going to be a scientist. You're going to Michigan to be a writer. Yeah. Fiction even, which I feel like is even less, <laughs> less, uh, kind of realistic than nonfiction. So, yeah. How long did it take them to come around? It took them, you know what? I think the older, I I don't know if you have any siblings, but I have a younger brother and I've, I found that a lot of people shared this experience with me where if you're the first kid, you're kind of like the guinea pig for parenting. Parents, I feel tend to be stricter with their older kids than with their younger kids. So when my younger brother was like, I'm playing varsity football and I'm going to go to UC Davis instead of any Ivy League school, my parents, by the time they got to him, they were ready to kind of accept what I what I wanted to do. And I think they were they were understanding of the fact that I had given it a go. If I was going to fail at being a writer, I could find something else to do that probably made money, better money. Um, but now that I am a working writer, that that is something that both surprises them and is something that they're incredibly proud of. So I think it was a combination of things. It was having my brother and seeing that he was also kind of living this more unconventional life. It was seeing that I was able to get a degree of success uh, in the field that I had chosen. And so, yeah, I think this is, again, where we loop back to success, the idea of productivity, the idea of, well, you can do this weird thing, but only if you're really good at it and only if you succeed at it. So there are a bunch of complicated threads in there, I think. And the trick about it is... There's a long period of time when you make the choice to live the creative life to where you're doing all of the right things, but you're not getting the results yet. Like you're not successful, you know, until you're, I don't know, depends on people's journey, right? Six to 10 years into this, right? Um, some, Some people have early breakaways, right? But it usually takes you know, getting those, not just the 10,000 hours, which there's a lot to be debated about that model, but the just the career traction that it takes for you to be like, oh, this is actually working. Um, and I think that's one of the problems of living the creative life when you're walking this, this unconventional path is the normal markers that people would use for success may not be there. Um, yeah. 
you know, so you write a short story and you get $300 for it. And you're like, this is great. And society's like $300 for like a month of your work, right? Come on, you could have done this other thing. Yeah. I mean, it is true that I worked for a startup company for a number of years while I was trying to be a writer. So I, you know, would wake up at four o'clock every morning, write for about three hours and then go to my day job. So it wasn't like I was making bank as a writer um, straight away. I wouldn't even say that I'm making bank as a writer right now, but my first book was rejected 41 times before it was picked up by a publisher. My agent had given up on it. And so I think, uh, you know, as much as we don't like to mention luck when it comes to success, luck plays a role. Um, I am really lucky to be able to do what I'm doing. And so I think, uh, yeah, you know, if I hadn't uh, found my way to becoming a full-time writer, I would still be working at a startup doing something, you know, I would be copywriting or um, there was a time and we're probably going to talk about this when I became too sick to have a day job. And so it was at that point that I started doing copywriting and copy editing and working with people on branding. Um, but yeah, writing has always been there. It's not always the forefront. It's not always the thing that makes the most money, but it was always there as something that I wanted to do. I love that. And why I love talking to another working writer is because I see so many, especially new writers or new creators, if we want to speak more broadly, they get so stuck on their creative thing having to be the thing that pays the bills for it to be successful. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was like, if I can't make my full-time living on it, or if I'm not getting my full-time living on it, then I'm somehow not a good artist or I'm somehow not a good writer. But when you really look at it, most successful working creators and writers, we always have like this either backup option or, or an alongside option that rides along with whatever our craft is. So I know, you know, yeah. you have your academy, we have all sorts of things. So it's, we don't have to get stuck in just like, if you're going to be a fiction writer, that if that has to pay all the bills, you know? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things in play there. So people like William Carlos Williams, so famous for poetry. He was a doctor. He wrote his poems on his prescription pads in between patients. I think another problem with society is this myth of overnight success. Like you'll see a a young author and they have this big splashy article in People Magazine or whatever. And it's like, so-and-so overnight success. What you don't see in that article is that person struggling and getting rejection upon rejection. And, you know, in my case, having their book rejected 41 times before they were selected as a once in a decade award winner. I mean, you know, stuff, stuff takes time to build and, you know, Ira Glass is kind of a problematic figure, but he, I, I still find quite poignant what he says about when you start doing the creative thing, you are not going to be able to do it at the level that you want. It takes time and yeah, time and energy to get to the, the level that you can see before you can do it. Time, energy, and luck. And for those of us who are more, um, centered nonfiction writers. Um, We have to remember that folks like, say, Adam Grant or Brene Brown, 
they are professors at universities, right? Um, So that means several things. One, they are getting paid. They have their baseline met from the university, usually is what that means. Two, they have graduate students that are doing work and doing some of that sort of design most of the time. I'm not saying specifically them, but if you see someone in that setting, they have... Research assistants. They have research assistants. They have this whole thing set up. And so you're like, how are they producing these great books every 18 months or whatever? It's like, well, um, maybe they're not coaching. Maybe they're not consulting. Maybe they're not doing that. Now, having been an academic myself and teaching, I understand we have teaching loads. We have other research things. But there's a different context in which they're doing their work that many people don't consider Right. Um, When they're thinking about how prolific someone might be or the quality of their work or how it's getting put together. Um, And it's like um, Sanderson, what's his, Brandon, Brandon, Um, I should know his name off the top of my head. But um, when we look at the James Patterson's, when we look at some of those folks and wonder how they're so productive, like they have teams, they have large teams that are helping them do this work. And yes, they had to be successful to get the team, but at a certain level, there's this team in, in economic and creative context that helps them be prolific. Yeah, and I think that's where we talk a lot about the invisibility of labor, right? So we we were just talking about the invisibility of the labor that it takes to get to that point. It also brings up that saying that people love to say like, oh, we all have the same hours in the day as Beyonce. Uh-huh. Like, do you also have all of the other things that Beyonce has that help her support um, her work and, you know, the people who do her hair and the people who make sure she has stuff to eat and her trainers and just all this labor that is invisible that goes on behind the superstar or doesn't have to be a superstar, a, a smaller star. Yeah. Ha- having been someone who said we all have the same amount of time as Beyonce, I know exactly what what's going on there. <laughs> right. Um, and while Beyonce makes a certain amount of choices, that's what we can say, a certain amount of co- choices. But there's also a context that she has. Right. Um, and I think that sort of goes on to the context most of us don't assume that we have is being um, full energied with you know, bodies that are not going through illnesses and disabilities and things like that. That's an assumed context that most of us have. Not most. I don't know that it's most, actually. Many of us have. Let's say it that way, right? Many of us have that people with chronic illnesses and disabilities don't have. And I think that's where a lot of additional suffering on top of the illness or the disability starts to write in because you assume you look at other folks' context and say, well, they're doing that, so I should be able to do that too. And we don't sort of recalibrate our expectations. So let's slide in. Tell us about the time that you were sick and couldn't work a full-time job and and what you learned about creative work and productivity during that time. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, I was at the University of Michigan. I was working on my first book. I thought work ethic was the most important thing in the whole world. I think saying that I had an excellent work ethic was one of the things that I was proudest about myself. And by that, I meant I was sitting at my laptop for eight to nine hours a day. I would wake up, have coffee, have coffee all day while writing. 
um, take a break, switch from coffee to gin and tonics, and then write on my laptop until one or two in the morning. And so I would do that every day. I was drinking so much espresso that I was vomiting three to four hours of uh, three to four times a day from caffeine sickness. I'd just be walking to class, have to stop and just puke in the street. Um, and then, you know, my body couldn't keep doing that. Uh, I, I thought my body, uh, would take as much as I would deal it. And that is often not the truth. So around around the time Hurricane Sandy happened, so I think this is around 2012 or 2013, I started noticing that I was having weird nerve pain. And so, you know, in looking at my coworkers at the startup, you know, a lot of them also had nerve pain, especially in their wrists and hands. And so we're all talking about like, oh yeah, like carpal tunnel, it's so rough when you're working on your computer all the time. But then it became worse. And then it became, I can't get out of bed to walk to the bathroom. And then it became, I'm fainting inexplicably and I'm having all of these bizarre symptoms and something is really wrong with me and I don't know what it is. So I went to neurologists, I went to rheumatologists, I went, they thought I had uh, certain kinds of cancer because I had these weird blood type results. And in the end, I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease, which is a very complicated and controversial diagnosis. But I think what's most important is not whatever diagnosis I ultimately received, but the problems of my body and realizing that bodies have limitations and we may not always reach our body's limitations at the same time. Some people don't reach that until they're in their 80s or you know some people may be born with disabilities and so have to deal with the limitations of their bodies from a very young age but yeah i went from being somebody who was like i'm working all the time and that is the best thing about me to being someone who was like i don't know if i can write one page given 3 days of just empty time. And it's funny because I'm sitting at my desk and I had put up a decal that said, be productive right next to my desk. And I've actually, yesterday I covered it up with a little poster because when I put that decal up on that wall, I was a different person than I am now. And just because you exhort yourself to be productive doesn't mean that a, productivity is the most important thing about you, or B, that you can be productive. Absolutely. I thought you were going to say that you covered up the productive part and just had B, right? <laughs> um, That's very poetic. I should have done that. Um yeah, well, not saying you should have done that, but like that's I think where we end up is uh, somewhere part of the journey. Um, you know, especially our 20s let's get real. Like we're doing all of that proving, all of that pushing and all that proving, making our way. And, um, our bodies are just sort of this thing. That's a either invisible part of the process or that thing we just have to sort of deal with. Right. Um, until it catches up with you. This is where, um, I learned pretty early in my career as a productivity thought leader and teacher that I, you know, when I started teaching about time blocking, that I had to put recovery blocks as a type of time that we put on our calendar that we acknowledged because otherwise it was like when people are looking at their schedules and looking at everything, it's like, 
where's the break here? Where's the humanity? Yeah. Where is the, yeah. like, you're crammed. You have four hours back-to-back meetings. Where do you go to the bathroom? Yeah. Right? Where do you get water? How does that work? And when we look at how exhausted we are, it's, it's you know, that sort of we're cramming it in. We're doing all the things because we have to. Right? Mm-hmm. And because hard work over exertion is lauded in our society um, as opposed to maybe essentialism, maybe focusing on those things that are doing the, you know, the, the Pareto principle, the 20% that's going to make the biggest difference and just anchoring there or just having a damn second to breathe. Yeah. And, and capitalism and the industrial revolution and, and all of those elements treat our physical bodies as though we are machines, as though we are robots. And so if you are time blocking and you're like, well, here's a spare 30 minutes that I could squeeze another, you know, to do into, um, you are not treating yourself as though you are human and, and, you know, need to, like you said, drink some water, go to the bathroom walk around the block or whatever it is. And I think that's where when we really, 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 really take seriously that we are organic beings who change in time throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, um, and honor that it has us approach how we think about productivity, time management, and prolificness differently, right? Um, because, for instance, I have um, a lot of female clients, and one of the things that we'll talk a lot is where are they in their cycle? Because this is important for executives and creatives. Like we don't necessarily want to be launching in the zenith of your energy, right? Or we don't necessarily want to be making large decisions, right? In times where maybe you might not be at your best, and it's not going to some sort of weird, you know, women are less than or equals. Like our bodies are going through, their bodies are going through certain things, and we need to acknowledge that. Why make it even harder to make important decisions by doing it at a time when you might not be energetically at your best. And um, it's a different way of thinking about it, but it's helpful because it's like, oh, I'm making all of these decisions when I'm depleted mm-hmm. and I'm not making the best decisions. I'm not being the best version of myself. And then I have to spend a lot of cleanup to undo the things. Um, which takes more time. Which takes more time and introduces not only more time, but it introduces more suffering in the sense of now there's that story of shame or regret or frustration that's on top of the work to be done. Um, and that's its own journey. So how did you reorient yourself around being a either consistent or regular writer to get back on the path after you went through this period of, of disability? Yeah, so I continue to live with disability. It's not as bad as it was during the worst years, which I think were around 2012 to 2018. But, you know, every day is different. Um, Every day is unpredictable. I go through flares where I am back to only being able to do one or two things a day. There are many years where I could only do one or two things a day. And that one thing might be taking a shower or it might be having a phone call. And so um, it was really hard in the beginning. I wrote an essay for Elle magazine that 
is one of the most popular things I've ever written, even though it wasn't in a book. But it was uh, an essay called something like, I'm chronically ill and I'm afraid of being lazy. And that, I think, speaks to the other side of the coin of our culture's obsession with productivity, which is that we are so afraid of being lazy or seeming lazy. Um, sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. And so I went from being an incredibly type A person to somebody who could do so much less than I used to be able to. And so I went through a long period of time where I was grappling with my body and my mind being able to do much less. And I was thinking, maybe I'm making this up. Maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe I'm just really lazy. And I think that is held up by things that people will say because they have been indoctrinated in this culture where they hear, oh, so you were lying in bed basically all day, must be nice you know, things like that, where they think, oh, you know, your, your fatigue and your, your need to rest uh, is so much nicer than my life of having to run around. Um, never mind the fact that disability is one of the minority groups of which a person can become a member of at any time. Um, but yeah, so a lot of people reached out to me at that time and said, I was just diagnosed with lupus or fibromyalgia or whatever, and I am always afraid that I am a lazy person. So I went from, you know, sitting in, at my laptop and doing all these things to having to kind of reevaluate how I was going to approach doing what I wanted to do. So this is all stuff that I ended up putting in a uh, in an e-course called Ass Kicking with Limitations 101, which then was called Dream Hunting with Limitations. Um, but yeah, I think having to look at my goals, how I wanted to readjust my goals, if I wanted to readjust them, having to figure out workarounds that were related to my limitations. So some people are astonished by the fact that The Collected Schizophrenias, which was my second book and a New York Times bestseller, I wrote it all on my iPhone or on an iPad mini because I couldn't sit at my desk and work on my laptop anymore. I had to be lying down and on my side. And I get so much inspiration from people like Frida Kahlo, who you know was a painter and then was in this horrible accident that left her very disabled and in chronic pain all the time. And you see these photos of her doing these magnificent paintings in bed with an easel that was built so that she could paint in bed. And so I think of her when I am lying in bed, feeling sick, lying on my side, tapping an entire chapter or an essay or whatnot on my phone using one finger. I mean, there's a long history of disability and people doing great things um, despite disability. So that, that was one step was figuring out my goals, looking to see what heroes I could look at and figuring out workarounds. It's, I want to comment as someone who has not had a long-term chronic disability. I was in a car accident that made me temporarily disabled for a while. Right. Um, and I think most people don't understand that at some point throughout your life, you are going to be temporarily disabled. It might not be long-term, but um, what many members of my community who are disabled um, will tell me or who live with a chronic illness will tell me is the thing about that laying in bed thing is like actually 
people who are able-bodied think that it's some sort of luxury or thinks that it's some sort of like vacation, but actually it's a prison, right? Because you want to do so many different things. The mind doesn't stop. The heart doesn't stop. Your ambition doesn't stop, but you're chained to this place, right? And so they're like, oh, it must be nice to name bed. It's like, you have no idea how much I want to get out of this bed, right? But I can't, right? And it's Mm -hmm. a whole different story. And at the same time, you accept society's shame about being lazy and worry about being lazy. It's like, I most want to do the thing and I'm stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, I was getting disability insurance. This is back when I was coming out of working at the startup and I was just starting to grapple with my disability. But I didn't find out until about a year later when I was given a packet of information that I actually wasn't supposed to see that the insurance company had sent a private investigator after me and had him record what I was doing and take photographs of me every time I left the house to prove that I wasn't disabled. Never mind that I left the house maybe once every like three weeks. There was actually a photograph of me at a cafe next door to my the clinic where I saw my doctor and the private investigator had written, subject was seen laughing and smiling as if that was supposed to be some kind of proof that I was faking it the entire time, that I was just trying to to grift the insurance company, not that I really wanted to get out of bed and not that going to the clinic was like the one thing I could do that month and that I had to force myself to go. And so, yeah, I think there's, there's the prisons that we are actually in when we're bed bound or, you know, house bound. There are the prisons of um, our minds when uh, we are hard on ourselves, when we are in those situations. And then there are the prisons that, insurance companies and society and other people put us in when they look at you and say, I saw you laughing and smiling the other day. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. It's like you are expected to somehow lose your capability to have the full range of human emotions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're disabled, it's like you're, you were laughing and smiling that one day, but yeah, you didn't see, you know, me in, you know, the the depths of despair, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, right? You just saw that piece because it turns out when we go out in social spaces, we tend to show more of the socially approved things, or maybe we can just enjoy ourselves. In a similar vein, my lawyer for our car accident, he advised us to stop posting on social media like lifestyle mm. photos and us doing things. So they're like, well, yes. if the insurance companies see you out they see pictures of you professionally speaking and doing those things, then they're going to use that to show that you're not actually disabled. Irregardless of the crippling pain that we had at the time, like I could speak for an hour, but I paid for it for four days, right? They didn't see that four days, but they're like, so just stop posting any of that sort of stuff. So there's a period of my life that doesn't show up on social media, right? And afterwards I'm just like, screw it. I'm not doing it anyways. Cause turns out I didn't want to do it in the first place, but Like, you can't live life fully in public in a certain way uh, in scenarios like what you're talking about or if you're temporarily disabled and, like, your lawyer's like, you know, don't share your life because it will be used against you. Yeah. Never mind that it's so great that you went out and gave a talk, right? And then you had to recuperate for four days. But it's so great that you were able to give that talk and then that's used against you, which is quite sad. And I think there are a lot of issues that we have with society that that reflect that kind of 
discrimination, but I, I still love knowing that you, that you did those things and that, you know, you did it, uh, even though you had to spend a long time recuperating. And I think it's so important to mention the recuperation because I think that's something that able-bodied people don't realize is how much it takes out of you if you are living with disability or chronic illness to do things that seem very easy to other people. Absolutely. Even to the degree of like showing up for a podcast interview, like in your case, like if you're already have limited energy and bandwidth, every one of these things, whether you really are in the Spoonie community or whether you just sort of know about it, every one of it takes a little bit of energy. So if you're already as a professional creator limited, so you have your solo creative work that you need to do, you have all of the correspondence that you need to do, and then just part of being a modern creator is you have things like this, right? And you have to divide those so prudently, so discriminately, right? That even doing that is a part of, you know, a major part of the work is like, well, I can do 10 things this week. Mm -hmm. What are the 10 things that are going to fuel me as a person, recover me as a human, right? As a, as an organic being, set me up strategically so that I can actually have the success that I want to, um, but also keeps people informed. They're like, it's just so hard to get all of that in those 10 slots if that's all you've got. And I think that is something that, you know, to bring this back to the conversation about productivity and um, things like the momentum planner, which I love, um, just the taking into account uh these kinds of limitations, I think, when addressing productivity is so important. Like I have, uh, I use Notion for a lot of things. Um, and so my assistant, um, who is also disabled and lives with chronic illness, um, charts all the tasks with how high, medium, or low the energy it will take is. And I think that's such a great component to take into account because not all activities are equal. And so that's, yeah, that's something that I, I think is really important to think about if you've never thought about it. Because even if you're not, you know, quote unquote, part of the disability community, or if, if you never think about your body, your body is still doing things for you. Um, it's still taking up energy to do one thing versus another. And it may, I don't know, may take until you hit a wall and you realize that you've really just banged the crap out of your body and it won't take any more um, for you to realize that different things take different amounts of energy. Um, but yeah, it, it's something to think about. We used to have that in an older version of the Momentum Planner. We used to have the four little energy blocks that showed you what mm -hmm. type of energy that task took. Um, we are likely going to pull it back in the newer versions of the planners it's, and build it into our new app as well, because it's just such a such an important thing. And so um, a lot of members of our community know that so much about what we do with energy management has come from me partnering with Angela, who's my wife, who actually does have um, multiple chronic illnesses and, you know, um, diagnoses that limit what she's going to be able to do. And so there are times where I'm like, hey, hun, like that's a red task or that's a red meeting, <laughs> right? And she knows that that's a high energy so in a meeting, I was like, oh, that's a green one where it's like you could probably be rejuvenated. And so there's these trade-offs because it's like, well, this 
this green thing, which might be her sort of tooling around in the, in the out, you know, in the backyard and sort of cleaning something up that lets her sort something and get outside after a red becomes a yellow, right? Because mm-hmm. she just doesn't have the energy anymore. And so we have to be very careful about how these things stack up. And so it's baked into that. And this, the other thing that I will tell people, you know, we talk a lot about the five projects rule here, which is no more than five active projects per time perspective. Well, it turns out, and I hate to say it this way, but it's the truth, having a chronic illness or a disability is going to be a project for the entire time. The amount of time it takes to maintain yourself, the doctor's appointments, the self-care, the recovery time, it's a project. Yeah, it's like a full-time job or more than full-time, really. It's more than a full-time job, and it takes the space that you might be able to do other things. And so, if we are dealing with chronic illnesses and disabilities, we have sort of, I guess, two logical op- or two straightforward options. We can pretend that we don't have it, right? And plan as if we don't. And then that introduces a lot of suffering, both emotional, but also to your body. The body will keep your score, right? And you, it will, you will go into energetic and physical debt. But at a certain point, you're going to have to pay that off. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't want to get to the point to where it ratchets up and ratchets up and ratchets up until you really are debilitated. But it will do that until like that's that's how our bodies work. I think a really lovely thing that you just mentioned is that you and your partner have a method of communication about energy levels. And my husband and I also came up with uh, a language for that. We use like first base, second base, third base, and then like like we're out like so i would use that language when we were out i would say like okay i'm at like second base we need to start heading to the car because i will not be able to walk back to the parking lot um but yeah i think like having these kind of language having this language you being able to to say that to your wife um in a way that she understands in a way that you know she'll be able to say it in a way that you understand i think that's so important Thank you for that. Um, We'll link to it in the show notes, but we've also talked about her concussion recovery. And so one of the things, so my wife is amazing for so many different things, powerhouse, smartest person I know. And so one thing with many people, but especially her type of profile is you don't speak for her. Never. (laughs) Like she has her own thoughts, her own feelings, and like you don't know where it's going to be. So as she's worked through this concussion sort of thing, we've developed a pattern where I have what basically a concussion protocol, where I know we're walking into a scenario that's going to drain her or be difficult for her. And instead of saying, hey, are you okay? Are you, are you going to be with us? I'm like, nope, we're done. We're leaving. Because in those moments, I actually have more awareness of what's going on. And I'm not fighting the shame of, like, I can hang out or I cannot or something. And so part of our relationship has... And it's it's a very awkward negotiation because we've been married together. We've been together since 97, right? And so we're learning these new patterns where we go somewhere and I'm like, there's a lot going on here. I'm aware of it and it's draining me. This is going to wear her out. It's like, I was looking at her and it's like, we're leaving. Concussion protocol, done. <laughs> we're out, yeah, right? And, and what you were just saying about you being able to do that because you don't have the shame aspect uh, is so important too, because there are times when I'm out and about and we're like at a party or, you know, we're at dinner or whatever. And I know in my heart that I will not be able to hang much longer, but I tell myself, no, you can push it. You can keep going. You can do it. Like, 
you know, you don't want to ruin things for other people. Um, you don't want to have to be the awkward one at the dinner table saying like, uh, sorry, everyone, but uh, I need to go lie down. Um, and so it can be so helpful to have somebody who understands what's going on with you, who can say, all right, you know what? <laughs> we got to leave. Yeah, we got to leave now. It's fun, but like we got to go and we don't have to tell you a whole lot of like, I don't need to tell people my wife's story right about that. I can just say it's time for us to go. Right. Um, and that's it. We, we leave. Obviously, we can do that with civility and courtesy, but it's a whole different thing of like I can hang in there and I'm like, especially for that particular sort of thing with people with concussions and, and going through that. That's part of the frustration is some of their executive functioning and some of their reasoning is not on point. And so if you're expecting someone in that scenario to make great decisions, it's like the very thing they can't do, you're expecting them to do. Right. Um, And so again, it's TBI, TBI stuff. Yeah, TBI stuff. And so it's very unique to that scenario, but it's also like thinking, all right, I know I can see what the next two or three days are going to be for Angela if we stay here or if we do this, I know staying at this restaurant with a bunch of kids running around and a bunch of loud noises and a bunch of just, that's going to wreck her for the rest of the day. We're gone. Right. Um, and we don't have to have a big conversation about it. And that can also be exhausting. Do you want to go? Do you want to stay? No, I'm okay. Like, are you sure? And all that sort of the next 30 to 45 minutes, you know what I'm talking about, Esme, right? Which is like, no, we're just gone. Like, let's and reclaim that time and energy. About- yeah. The sounds, like people don't think about that. Like just hearing sounds takes energy or, you know, the, the environment. It's not just like standing up and giving a talk or, you know, sitting at a microphone and recording a podcast. It's like the environment. It's your brain dealing with, you know, like you said, the noise of the kids running around or having to make decisions. Like, am I going to order this dish or this dish? Um, all of those things take energy as well. Yeah. Um, And I think once we, so the second component I was going to say, we can pretend that all this is not real for us and sort of soldier on and, you know, have good work ethics and sort of do all, have grit. Mm. (laughs) Um, Or we can say, you know what, we are impaired. We are, we're like, we've reached our limit or that's something we can't do um, without paying costs that we don't want to pay. And so therefore, we're going to make decisions on it. I think the latter, it's can be emotionally harder to do to get used to. But long term, it's actually where we can create a foundation where we're thriving, whether we're more accepting of ourselves or they're actually kind to ourselves, um, where at least in me and Angela's experience, we become way more kind to other people because you never know what people are going through. Right. Um, and so it's harder at first but easier in the long term, at least from our, from our side of things. How's it been on, on you as you've negotiated that? Yeah, I think for us, uh, for my husband and I, there was kind of a steep learning curve because he was like me used to me being able to do a certain amount of things to be able to, you know, at a drop of the hat, say, let's go out to dinner or, you know, instead of having to plan like, okay, tomorrow we're going to go out to dinner. So today I'm going to lie in bed all day and, you know, try to get some rest so that I can have the energy necessary to do this later. And so uh, learning all of that, it was hard. It was hard. And, um, you know, we went to couples counseling. I think that was helpful too, to be able to have somebody to moderate those conversations. Um, But yeah, I think that realizing that, you know, 
our relationship it is going to have to change because one of us has gone through this significant change. Um, yeah, that's been something that has been really important. And, you know, we're, we're in some ways stronger for it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say, gee, I wish this, I'm so glad that happened to me. Um, it would, it's been pretty awful and I would rather it not be the case, but there, there are some things that you have to become really good at like communication. Yeah. And sometimes Angela, I joke, it's just like, you know, we're a little bit on the accelerated learning pathway because at some point as we age, we will all get to this point. Yes. Right? Um, and so we just got more years of practice, turns out. We still would not like to have this practice, but I don't know. That's where we are. Right. Yeah. I joke that I, I am, I have gotten a lot of practice in getting old is what I say sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm curious, what part of the journey of being a, um, working writer, um, renowned working writer as well, um, and your disability and illness journey, are you most struggling with in this moment? I think right now it's, um, having to deal with and cope with what is going on in society and in our national culture. Um, I think, you know, the United States has never been a perfect project. Uh, we have dealt with slavery and uh, the oppression of many groups uh, throughout the, from the founding of America till now. But I feel like in the past couple of years, and maybe this does have to do with the internet as well, the rate of revelation we receive of all the lousy things that are happening in the world is so high. And so as I'm dealing with my illness and work and, you know, doing the things that I wanted to do, like running the Unexpected Shape Writing Academy, I have to also, you know, recognize that Roe has just been overturned what am I going to do with that in terms of how my body deals with it, in terms of how my mind is dealing with it? What am I going to do when I learned that yet another Asian American person was murdered or, you know, a bunch of Taiwanese uh, church parishioners were shot in a mass shooting? Um, I think having to kind of cope with and recognize the world that is going on around us is another challenge, not just for people who are dealing with disability, um, but you know, everyone. I th I've heard from so many women lately that they've lost their hair, which is an interesting conversation because I kind of happened upon it by accident, but I have noticed my hair is thinning in the front. And I had thought, oh, well, I'm just getting older. Like I'm almost 40. But I, there are other women my age who are saying like, I'm cutting hair out of my vacuum cleaner because the stress of what has been going on with the pandemic and taking care of my kids and all of this other stuff is just too much. Absolutely. Well, that's where when the pandemic came out, I reminded people that like the pandemic is in, in my language, one, two or three projects, right? One project is just the way it changed people's work, right? That's a whole thing to figure out. If you were a parent or in a caretaking position, then you had to parent and caretake in a different way. That's a whole project. Then if you got sick or someone around you got sick, that's a third. So that's on top of everything else you've got going on. And so to our point about living with disability and chronic illness, you've already got one project taken from that, right? Um, and I wrote about this the other day. 
um, in our newsletter. I'll, I'll publish it and on the blog, but I'll publish it on social media too. Like what I said was reeling, organizing, and marching are all distinct projects. But that reeling piece is really important, right? And just the emotional processing of women in our society waking up one day less free than they were the day before, right? That's going to take a while for us to process, right? Um, that's a project, right? And so it's like you already are you're down to four because of a disability, and then there's a bunch of nonsense happening in our society. Now you're down to three. And you still have to figure out, you don't have to, but most of us are still figuring out, like, how do you do all the other things, right? Yeah, like we live in a society where we have to make money to survive and to have a home and to, you know, if you're doing mutual aid to help give money to mutual aid. And I love that you count reeling as a project because it is. And I think that so many people like to think that no, we can just keep going. Like we'll do exactly the same amount of work that we've always done. There's no uh, accounting for the energy it takes to deal with all of these crises, these this ongoing crisis that has been happening. So yeah, I, I love that. I really love that. Thank you. Well, as the guest on today's podcast, um, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge. So as we wrap things up and we're thinking about how we want to send our our listeners off in kindness and love and support, what invitation or challenge um, would you um, issue for them? I would like to issue an invitation or challenge to, uh, and I think this is especially for the people who are get really down on themselves for quote unquote, not doing enough. I would like to issue a challenge for you to just write down everything you do in a day. Um, and I'm talking everything like washing your face, like putting on eyeliner, um, put write down everything because you are doing so much more than you think you are. And maybe uh, in writing down all of those things, not only will you be able to give yourself a pat on the back, but you might also recognize some of the things that are taking up energy that you don't need to be doing. Um, that you maybe you'd rather be doing something else that is uh, nicer for yourself. So yeah, that's my invitation. I so love that Esme. Um, all right, listeners. So you heard it from her account for those things that you are doing big and small. Um, it's sort of like what we want to do is acknowledge and celebrate what you have done and reclaim your time and energy for the things you don't have to do. Esme, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.